Hello everybody, welcome to episode 28 of ZK Live. I'm Zach Kenny. Tonight is uh, Sunday night, it's Q&A night. Uh, I apologize for not having a show this week. The power went out due to the storm, uh, so we had to reschedule. Uh, but next week we'll have another show. We're going to be answering questions tonight. Um, probably talking about tip it, rolling and tipping a bit. We had a lot of questions about that. Um, we're going to talk about probably some classes that we may be putting on. Um, we're going to talk about um, warranty and going back and fixing jobs. But yeah, it's Sunday night. I'm assuming you can all hear me. We had a big week. This coming week is going to be a huge week for us. We have a new deadline that we need to get a bunch of things done on the Black Gloss Project. So... We're gonna be moving some people up there. I look a little shorter. Yeah, I was trying to, I put the camera up higher so I could, my head wasn't blocking this. So it's like angled down and I can see myself. Um, maybe I'll drop it down a bit. Um, yeah, so we have, we have a big week, um, but we have reinforcements, Dan and Bradley. The new guy are going to be going up to Boston to help out the team. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be exciting. Uh, the The mahogany project is coming along nicely. Uh, we may be having a design change as far as the spec goes. I just got a message from the architect. He loves the look of the sanded wood. Um, so, lots of things up in the air. We're going to be back at the black eco satin project on those panels. Um, thanks to, oh yeah, thanks to this massive paint heater here. Um, so I think paint goes in here and it comes out here. Um, we're going to be heating up eco and spraying it through an air assisted airless in order to try and get it to lay out but dry fast at the same time. We're gonna be keeping very close track of surface temperature. That thing weighs a ton. Uh, it is solid. It's it's interesting. Um, in my world, like in most of the most of the world, like you buy things and they're ready to rock. This is such a like commercial industrial uh, piece of equipment that I we have to like hook up the wiring ourselves. Like it didn't come with just like a plug to just plug it in. I think I have to figure out the wiring on it. So I'm going to take it apart tonight and see if I can figure out what I need to do. It's supposed to be pretty simple. So we'll see how that goes. Um, first coat on the handrails, very exciting. Um, we have to get to a stopping point. Friday is the goal to have everything but the two full rooms uh, finished in black gloss. Uh, so we have all hands on deck to do that. I think we should be good. Um, what else is going on? We got a lot of cabinet jobs coming up. Um, uh, we have still a lot of black gloss doors to do for that project. Um, we sprayed the la we sprayed the, um, kitchen counter and, um, sink with metal. I have a product coming that we're going to be coating all that metal in. Um, a very exciting new product. And I've been thinking a lot more about having a class where on a weekend we might have four or five people come out, spend two full days with us in the shop, 
um, and go deep into, we've had lots of requests for the business side stuff, talking about, you know, how to get into the higher end, how to manage clients and, and move up on that side. And then I've had lots of people asking about spraying, um, and fine paints of Europe and the metal and all those things. So I just, I've, I, I can't ignore how many people have asked to come to the shop and, and have asked to learn. And I just give, I've, I've messaged so many people all the time. Um, but it's really hard to like talk someone through something in a very short amount of time. So I figure we have the shop, we have the space. Um, I think it would be cool to have four or five people out. I don't want to have too many people because then you, you know, it's not hands on enough. Um, but I think, um, I mean, I paid a consultant a lot of money to come out, um, and do a one-on-one -on -one with me when I first started getting into fine paints. Um, the money I invested in that paid off a hundredfold. Um, and I think we can do a very similar thing, um, and, and help out a lot of people and also build community even more, a, a stronger community. I would love my, my, I would love to have like a painter summit or a, you know, a conference where we all got together and talked about coatings and got to know each other and share secrets. And, um, you know, that happens at PDCA, but that happens more about the business side. And so I, I think if we could, if I, we'll start small with a few people will come out, but I think if we can get a, uh, work toward some sort of a painter summit or a craftsmanship summit, I know the PDCA has craftsmanship forum. Um, but I think we could maybe do something here at the shop. Um, that would add a lot of value to people's lives. I would have loved to have gone to something like that when I was starting out. Um, and, you know, so that's in the works. I'm looking for more feedback from everybody. Um, but I just love the idea of getting together. I've gone to a number of conferences. Um, you know, I've gone to certifications and it is just so invigorating to go spend a weekend with other craftspeople learning the trade or learning a, a, an aspect of the trade and upping your game and getting to know other people who are also trying to up their game. And it's just, it's super valuable social media has been great. It connects us all, but to do it face to face, um, for a weekend, I think would be tremendous. So again, if you guys are interested, I'd love to hear from more people about what they would want to see. I have some ideas. Um, but I think we're always trying to elevate the, the standards of the trade and spread knowledge and keep people, um, you know, there's just, we run into too often we see paint contractors who they're just going through the motions or maybe they just don't know any better. Um, we're on a project now with the, all the mahogany and they're brushing on it's a multi, multi-million dollar house custom million. There's over a million dollars in millwork in the house and they're brushing on, um, regal semi-gloss regal select semi-gloss is being brushed on the trim. And those things just should not happen. Um, you just shouldn't put Regal Select on trim in a nice home. Uh, I would argue, I would love to have that discussion if someone thinks you should. I'd love to hear why. Uh, but it's not a true enamel. And it's going to stay sticky and soft on that trim forever. We've all seen projects. We've all been in houses where the 
the trim or the doors or the cabinets are sticky and soft. They're not enamel paints. Um, Semi-gloss does not equal trim paint. I just looked at an architect's spec on a multi-million dollar custom home, and the spec said Regal Select Semi-gloss on all trim. We got those things need to change. Like that just that's not okay. That is a lack of knowledge in our industry. That's a that's someone needs to talk to that architect um, and just say like, look here. Let me ex briefly explain to you why Regal Select does not belong on trim in a multi-million dollar custom home. Um, we want to see a true enamel. I know a long time ago, or even twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, semi-gloss equaled trim paint. They were all, most paints were enamels. All the oils were enamels. They they just, so you got the semi-gloss and you put it on your trim. Well, with all these water-based wall paints now that come in semi-gloss, um, like I don't believe you should put emerald on trim. Emerald is not a enamel, um, an enamel. Emerald urethane is an enamel. Emerald is a wall paint and belongs on walls. Um, it's, and it doesn't, it's not super difficult to do this. You know, Pro Classic is an enamel. It dries hard. It's gonna be great for trim. Um, if you go to the paint store, unfortunately, the paint store will tell you, yeah, you can put emerald on your trim. Can you put emerald on trim? Sure, you can put emerald on trim. Uh, is it best practice? I would. I would vehemently argue that it is not. Um, trim should have enamel. I mean, I would prefer to see enamel on walls and trim, if if it was up to me. But surely on trim, you want to see an enamel, um, specifically doors, things you're going to touch and move all the time. When the paint doesn't dry, especially when the door touches the frame, and you have a non-enamel paint, it's soft and it's sticky forever. Uh, nobody likes that. That's just. When there's other products out there that are enamels, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so things like that, I'm always trying to up the level of knowledge um, in the industry. I think it's valuable. Um, I don't know. It's 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 sad to see um, non-enamels being put on trim. Um, so we have a, a lot of questions tonight. Um, a number of questions, not a lot. Um, I've, I had a lot of questions on the Holland Lack Brilliant being rolled and tipped. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Just as I was signing on, I saw Phil made a post about the brushes. Everybody can go check out Phil's post about the brushes. Those brushes were developed, were brought to my knowledge by a great painter, Jessica Allred, who's been on this show. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> From Alternative Finishes. Uh, she's a true craftsman, so freaking knowledgeable and studies the craft um, and has so little ego as it relates to painting in life, but she just, she just keeps the ego out of painting. And so she was able to find in her search for the best brush to roll and tip, she was open to trying brushes that were not expensive and were not sold at paint stores. Um, so she found this brush and when you see the brush and touch the brush, you understand why it is a great brush for tipping. Very, very smooth, very fine bristles. Um, they don't fall out of the brush. Uh, someone had mentioned that in one of the posts. Um, 
in one of the comments that it's just a it's a very very fine brush and so when you rolling and tipping is applying paint with a roller generally a foam roller it's this was most often rolling and tipping is done in the boating industry um a lot of uh, work on boats and yachts is done using rolling and tipping, uh, at least before sprayers it was, and it still is quite often. Um, at where you apply, apply the paint, like you saw in the video, with a foam roller, ideally, um, and then you use a brush on a very um, parallel to the surface angle, so you're not keeping your brush up like this. The far, as many of you know, um, the farther you tilt your brush down, if the surface is like this, the farther you tilt your brush down, the less paint you're gonna be taking off, the less um, you're gonna be like pushing into the paint, right? When you're vertical, when you're perpendicular like this and you're brushing, you're really moving the paint around a lot. And then you lay, when you lay off paint like this, which was how we tip off our, our paint very softly, just to knock down the air bubbles and to lay out the paint. And then with the oil, it stays open long enough that if you have a very smooth surface and you apply a very even amount of coating with the foam roller, now you use that, that brush and you just tip it off. Just knock down the bubbles, give it a very subtle brush stroke and it all lays out and it's beautiful. And it's, it's a lot easier to use a foam roller to evenly apply oil-based paint. Anyone who's worked with oil-based paint knows it takes a lot of effort to move and brush oil-based paint if you're just brushing it, right? And that's why oil-based paint brushes for most of time have been very stiff, shorter bristle, very stiff brushes. They allow you to work and work and work that paint very perpendicular and working in lots and lots and lots of brush strokes to really get that because oil-based paint does not want to spread out the way that water-based paint will just spread off the brush. So typically oil-based paint brushes have been natural bristle brushes that are fairly stiff, which allows you to really work that paint, um, which is great for traditional brush finish. So we have a job uh, on the, actually the mahogany project, we're doing the cabinets. We made two samples for the architect and they, he, neither of them has have enough brush strokes in them. So we're going to actually switch back to an Omega brush, the one that Fine Paint sells from Holland. It's a, it's a stiffer bristled, natural bristled brush. And it puts a much more pronounced brush stroke in, what we would call traditional brush strokes, a traditional brush finish. Um, and that's the look the client's after. Quite often though, we are not, we have clients who want a brushed finish or we're brushing to try to minimize the brush strokes, what we call a modern brush finish, where it has very, very, very subtle brush strokes. In that case, now there's modern paint technology, modern paint brushes, these synthetic fiber brushes. And yes, they're not awesome at applying the oil-based paint because they're softer bristles. And so if you were to take your brush and try to brush it out over a surface, it's gonna be harder because the bristles aren't as stiff to move the paint. That's why we use the foam roller. We use the foam roller, we apply the paint. It, you can spread it very nice and evenly. The paint is evenly spread amongst the surface and then we just tip it off. Um, I would encourage you, I'm sure there are a number of YouTube videos on rolling and tipping. Uh, we did a short video, Phil made one, showing kind of how it works. Um, oftentimes when whole rooms are brushed, 
um, in a more traditional setting, they want a brushed finish on a, in a gloss room, say. Uh, I know guys who do that. Um, and they're gonna, and rolling and tipping is a great way to do a larger bristle brush. Uh, Chinex bristle brush is, uh, I mean, it will work. FPE is broad. I, I'm assuming you're meaning Holland Lac. Um, Chinex bristle brush with Holland Lac will work. That's a stiffer brush. That's more, a little more like the, um, that's gonna give you a more pronounced brushed look. Uh, the Chinex bristle brushes are great. They're stiffer. Um, but I would say that the Tynex nylon, the Vegas, for example, that's got a much finer bristle. If you look at the two and feel the two, you can rub them on your face and you'll feel the difference. So the Tynex nylon is going to be better for tipping. If that's, if you're looking to minimize brush strokes, um, houndstooth Phil just posted a picture, uh, at, uh on his feed of the brush, the brushes that we are using to tip for a modern brush finish. They come from Michael's. They're not expensive at all. Um, and when you see them, you'll, when you touch them, you'll understand why they're so good. They would not be great at applying paint across a large surface. Um, and, and yeah, they probably are a nylon bristle. They're very, very fine, um, synthetic or man-made brush. Um, we've, before we found those, we used to use the uh, the Vegas and the other, I believe, the red bristle from Corona, which I believe is Tynex Nylon. Um, those are, again, very, very fine bristles, and so they lay out the paint with minimal brush strokes. But if you were to try to brush something with those, it's going to be a lot more work to try to get that paint to spread with a softer bristle. Um, and that's kind of the difference. Yeah, the Sabre and the Vegas are, are those brushes. Um, and they're great brushes. I, I, I do like them a lot. Um, let's see. So I posted a picture of a warranty job um, that we just fixed um, this week. Three years ago, we did a project where the front of the house had been painted, but the other three sides were natural shingle style, um, uncoated. They turned black. And because of the wood preservative, I'm very confident in painting unpainted, uncoated sh shingles in the past. I would have maybe put a solid color stain on, but never would have painted. Um, because of the wood preservative now, we feel very confident painting bare wood. Um, so that project, you can go back three years into my Instagram feed and you can see, you can find video of us doing it. We sprayed on um, C2 Guard wood preservative, and then we sprayed on oil-based primer, um, and then we sprayed on two coats of uh, emerald at the time. Um, the house looks mint everywhere, except for, I believe they had a backed up gutter in this one section. Um, either that or the gutter could be uh, too narrow. It could be a four, it's a four inch gutter, and it maybe should be a six inch in that one spot because it's a, a lot of water comes down this hip. Um, so there was clearly water, extreme water damage. Water was just like pouring in this one section. There was a downspout there and right around the downspout and behind it, uh, the paint was peeling off in sheets. So anytime a client calls or shows, sends me pictures saying like the paint's peeling, like, oh, you know, that's obviously our worst nightmare. Uh, especially on a project where we did a thorough wood preservative primer paint, um, 
paint peeling was the last thing I would ever expect. So initially I'm just like, oh wow, let me go see it. But I'm pretty sure there's something else going on, but let me go see. So the, the thing, when we peel the paint back in that picture that I posted, you can see the, the backside of the peeled paint is full of wood fibers. So the paint was very well adhered to the wood. The wood was not well adhered to the rest of the wood. So that's due to moisture, right? Like the, because I had treated that bare shingle. And so there was the top layer of that shingle was wood, had wood preservative. So it was waterproof, but there was moisture getting in from behind and it was pushing out and must have made those wood fibers eventually come off. It pushed the wood fibers off. So um, we took the gutter off, the downspout off. We scraped the paint, we sanded it, we applied oil primer, and we touched up the paint. Um, free of charge, we didn't charge the client. Um, it, I don't have a formal warranty. I need to make one because we're just gonna warranty everything all the time. Um, even in this case, when we didn't do it wrong. If, if it was a bigger fix, I would have had to charge the client. Like I can't repaint an entire house if it's not my fault. Um, but this was a an acute issue. I made them aware that here's what I, I need you to talk to your gutter guy and get your gutters fixed so this doesn't happen again. I I'm, obviously I'm not going to come back and paint it another time if this fails if you don't deal with your gutter. Um, but it was just like you know it's a small price to pay for. It's I just see it as customer service uh, and marketing budget and it's like yeah we're gonna show up and we're gonna fix something like that the, cl the client was great um at the time and they still are they've always been great um they didn't bust my you know they, they weren't grinding me on price when we originally did the project um so i was happy to go back for them um and make that right now had they been grinding me on price uh not wanting to pay the final payment if they'd been jerks and not good clients, um, yeah, there's probably, if they, they wrote me a review on Google three years ago, I'm sure, like, there it was a two-way street. Like, they were great clients, we were a great painter to them, and so when something goes wrong, like, we're showing up. Now, if they had not been a good client, and they had been jerks to us, or tried to not pay the final payment, or, or any of those things, well then, I've had that happen before. And then I've had the client call us and want us to come back and do stuff. And and it was like, are, are you kidding me? You, you didn't even pay me in full for this project. And now you want me to come back and touch something up that we didn't do wrong. Um, that's not going to happen. But a good client, like we're always going to take care of a good client. And, you know, do I, was it that big of a deal? It was a day, you know, it was less than a day's worth of work. It was about a day's worth of work for one guy. Um, and so, you know, moving on. Um, I think that that will pay off in the future. The client was ecstatic. Um, that will pay off in the future. Um, even if it's not this client directly, that mentality will pay off in the future. Um, and I'm much more looking at the long game here than the short game. And did I make money on every man hour today? Uh, if we spend a few hours making someone happy that keeps a customer and keeps our reputation good, you know, it's cost of doing business. Um, and I think that's having the long game uh, perspective. So I may, I probably, I didn't always have that. I, I'm certain I didn't always have that. Um, there's definitely a time where I was very 
quid pro quo, tit for tat business mentality. I think that's very dangerous to have a like short term, small minded, like I'm at war with you and I got to get, if you give me something, I'll give you something, but I'm not going to like that. Just like adversarial um, perspective on things, I, I think is, it's a very defensive uh, mentality and mindset. It's not a like, what do they call it? Like the blue ocean mentality or whatever to business. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for not seeing our world as a zero sum world and sort of giving more than you get and, and you'll always have plenty. Uh, back to what I always talk about, of adding lots of value and, and then capturing some of the value in return back. And the more value I give, the more I'll be able to capture in return. Um, so it was an easy decision. Let's see, where should we start? Um, so I went over, this is fun, I forgot about this. My friend uh, MTL Carpentry asked, why did it fail? Moisture was, uh, there's excessive water because the downspout was most likely backed up um, or it was not a sufficient sized gutter and downspout, one of the two. Because uh, it was it was so localized, the rest of the house is in perfect condition. Um, and right on either side of the gutter section of that wall was perfect. So it was clear that it was that gutter that was the issue. And it was moisture. Um, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. All right, Wood Guy says, how long do you wait to paint eastern white cedar shingles after they've been installed? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that. I would not, I would want to wash them after, um, I don't know. I would say like three Three months would probably be the max I would wait without washing them, like power washing the house before I painted them again. Because you're going to get mold and mildew growing on them at, at, a, at some point. And we're going to want to use oil-based primer, so we're not going to want to lock in mold and mildew with food. Oil-based oil primer and oil paint is food for mildew, right? The linseed oil in there, the mildew likes to eat. Um, so we want to make sure that there's not a lot of mold and mildew on the surface before we oil prime. Otherwise you're locking in uh, and giving food to the mildew. It will eat away. And we've all seen paint peel because the mildew was underneath the paint. Um, so on Eastern white cedar shingles, if they were installed new um, and they were taken care of, I would probably want to get them coated within two to three months the most. Um, otherwise we just have to wash the house before we coated them. Um, and in all of those conditions, if we're painting, I'm going to be using a wood preservative first on any bare wood, especially on shingles that are only getting coated on one, two, three, four sides of the six. Um, you know, the wood preservative is cheap insurance. Um, so that answers that. I think that answers that question. But if you wait too long, it's the surface is going to get really dirty and now your paint adhesion is going to be an issue. So really you, you don't want, and then you're going to get a deteriorated layer of wood as well. But mostly I'm concerned about the surface being contaminated when I go to prime. Um, so thanks for that question. Here we go. We have a project coming up that involves this. J&M Painting and Drywall said, can you share some experience you've had with RRP compliance? I will share that we do very little lead work because we do it all by the book. 
um, with RRP compliance, and Rhode Island has some fairly strict laws. And in order to do it legally, you spend a lot of time not painting, right? You spend a lot of time setting up plastic, documenting things, a lot of, so there's a lot of extra liability, right? I can get fined massive amounts of money three years later. I have to keep my records for three years after I do a project. Uh, sign in books of who was on the job site each day. You have to have a, a plan on how you're going to take care of, you know, you have to clearly show that you've educated your employees on how to do things. Um, there's a lot of extra work that goes into it, right? Then, then on the day of when you go to actually paint, like now you have to mask the inside of every window with blue tape and plastic so that no dust gets inside the house. You have to alert the neighbors, which is never fun to say, Hey, we're going to be working with lead next door. Come watch us. Um, then you have to put six mil plastic, 10 feet out from the house. You have to catch all of your, your chips. You have to contain them at the end of each day. It, a lot of work goes in the, goes into the paint, goes into not painting, which obviously adds a lot more cost. Add to the fact that now if a kid tests with all children get tested at school for lead when they're young, and if those one of those kids has an elevated level of lead, now they go to the, the, the parent and they say, give us a list of anyone who's been doing work in your house in the last three years. And they come to me now and they say, well, let me see the book that you had that showed all the people working. And let me see the, the proof that you were like compliant, right? And I have to show them all that stuff. And so there's a lot of it. And then I can get big fines, right? If I don't do that properly. So if I'm going to do all that, the, if the, I'm going to take on those liabilities, I'm going to also now take on all that extra labor and so what ends up happening is 99% of the time, this is why we don't do much. I've done two and we're about to do one that's very different and unique. I'll tell you about that. But the, the, the biggest one we did was a restoration of an, of an old church that's now a house. It's beautiful. It was the biggest learning lesson I've ever had on a project. But we absolutely crushed this project as far as the actual painting went. Um, I really dropped the ball. It was early on in my career. I did not know how to manage clients and expectations. And um, I burned that bridge at the end. And I'll share about that sometime. But we removed every ounce of lead, every ounce of paint off the outside of this house. And they had double crown moldings. It was a gorgeous church that was now a house. So, but by the time we were going to do all this stuff, it's like, what are you going to, you're going to have me scrape the loose lead paint and then paint it. So by the time... Because if you hire me to come do it legally, what we end up, what I, why I never win them is I say like, honestly, I think you should just remove all the paint from your house. Do it one time and be done with having lead paint. Well, that's very expensive now. So we just don't do it very often. Um, I know there are plenty of guys who are doing it that aren't going that extreme, but I just look at it like if, if I'm going to do this, I don't really want to do it, but if I'm going to do it, I want to do it in a way where we are doing a restoration. We are getting rid of all lead. I've done that. I did a, a project um, on the east side of Providence with window sashes. And so we restored all the window sashes. We took every window sash out of the house. We stripped them to bare wood. We took the glass out. We documented this whole process. We put the glass back in. We painted the windows. We kept, we shellacked the sides of the windows and we used beeswax to the sides of the window with shellac so that they didn't they slid nice and we, you don't paint the sides of the window 
Same with the tracks. We stripped the tracks. Um, we took the parting bead out. We stripped that down. And we put shellac and beeswax on the parting bead and on the sides of the tracks. Um, and we were able to document that whole process so that the lead inspector could, could come in and then sign off that these they, they move the windows up and down, I think, five times or something. And they take lead swabs, test swabs, and then they test them in a lab um, in order to get the certification that the client was after to say it was a lead-free um, surface. Um, so, you know, we kind of come in and move, if we're going to do lead, it's sort of an extreme circumstances. Um, I understand that it's not for everybody and there's other ways of doing it. Uh, I've missed a bunch of comments while I just went on that rant. Um, use something other than water when cleaning wood shingles to kill any mold spores. Yeah, we, we use cedar wash, um, or we'll use, um, chlorine bleach. It's not ideal. There's cedar wash is really the best product or oxalic acid or citric acid. Um, yeah, it's very tough to get clients to want to pay for uh, doing lead legally. Um, I just had my neighbor having it done illegally. I, I ranted on this on Instagram about it when it happened. Um, yeah, the fines are huge for lead. So I just look at it like if I'm going to do it, um, we're going to do it by the book, which means we don't get very many lead projects. Um, but we've had a few, we've had a few, um, I'm actually, so I just got contacted by a bank. We're going to be doing a project. Actually, it's a, it's a rare one for us where we're not doing a very, very high end fine finish type of thing. But again, we're using our coatings expertise to give the client what they want. In this case, the client needs, uh, it's a bank, it's a foreclosure. The client needs a lead certified company to come in and get them a certificate of compliance, which is what they need in order to sell the building. Um, so we're working with the lead inspectors, um, which I happen to know from other projects. And so we're, we've come up with a plan to get them a certificate of compliance. Um, I will not be probably documenting this project. It's going to be the ugliest thing we've ever done. The house will be probably completely demoed um, and restored when it's sold and, and bought by somebody else. But in order to legally sell the building, uh, they need to get a certificate of compliance. Uh, this is a board building that's boarded up right now. And not boarded up, it's got metal boarded. It's boarded up with metal things on the windows. Um, but we are going to come in and we're gonna remove all loose and peeling paint and we're gonna get them a certificate of compliance. Um, but we don't typically do stuff like that. Um, most of what we do is a lead, when it's lead based is restoration work. In fact, I had a client this summer who came to me and wanted us to do it. And I said, I just recommended to him, he should probably put vinyl siding on his house. I think that was a better use of his money. Um, the house didn't, wasn't, didn't have a historic value to it. And it was just cheaper in the long run to wrap the house in vinyl than it was to remove the lead paint and paint it properly safely. Um, yeah, so that's that. Um, here we go. Schindler's Museum asks, why do you use a foam roller to distribute the paint on the banister? Um, what is happening? People, there's, someone is just randomly putting things in the comments. 
Um, I'll have to get rid of them. Why do you use a foam roller to distribute paint on the banister? Uh, the foam roller adds the least amount of texture to the paint as we apply it. So if you take a, the black foam rollers and you work the paint, you get just a very, very subtle foam roller texture. Um, and you don't have to worry about fibers, right? If you were, if we were to take a, even a microfiber, uh, I gotta get rid of this guy. I don't understand what is happening, but, uh, sorry, buddy. Um, uh, here we go. Uh, all right. We got rid of that guy. That was weird. Uh, when you use the foam roller versus say, even if you got like a super nice microfiber mini roller and oil, you're going to have little fibers that fall off of it probably. And you're going to have a lot more texture to the mini rolling. I, I've always called them mini rollers. I know people call them whiz rollers, call them whatever, the four inch little rollers. Um, the foam roller is nice because it applies the paint very, because we want a thin layer of paint and we want it very, very evenly applied. Um, and so the foam roller is perfect for that. It's not great if you're using water-based paint and you're trying to put like a nice coat of paint on fairly quickly. Some people call them hot dog rollers. Um, for water-based paints that you're trying to like paint fast and put a lot of paint, like, yeah, foam roller is not awesome. But when you're trying to apply a thin amount of oil-based high gloss black paint, um, a black foam roller is tremendous. Uh, we got a new question in while that was happening. Here we go. Um, Mr. Andrew Adams. Um, Air assisted versus HVLP pros and cons. Ooh, this is fun. Um, this is some of the stuff that we'll get into in real depth when we do the classes. Uh, we'll call it, I don't know what we're going to call it, ZK Academy, or I, I don't know what we'll finish. We'll call it some, something cool. But air assisted airless is a tremendous finish. Um, but an air assisted airless machine obviously requires a lot more paint, right? Because you need to fill a line full of paint. Um, so even if, say, you use a 15-foot hose, which is pretty short, and a hopper on your air-assisted airless gun, like, you're still filling up that hopper with and a line full of paint. Um, so you're going to have... You're going to need more paint. It's not going to be good as good for small projects. You're going to have a little more cleanup, for sure. Um, so... Air assisted airless is better is best for um, larger projects. Generally, um, if you're going to spray more, when you need to get a higher volume of paint out, uh, it's funny HVLP is high volume, low pressure because there's not a lot of paint. It's high volume of air, but there's not a lot of volume of paint coming out. Um, so it's not ideal. Uh, HVLP is not ideal for water-based paints, for sure. Um, and arguably, air cisteros isn't ideal either, but there's less air and more paint in that situation, so it's better for water-based. Um, but air cisteros is really, versus HVLP, to me, comes down to size of project. Um, you can get the same finish with both, generally, um, but if I'm looking to do a single door, I'm going to use an... Uh, and I, I, we don't... I prefer not to use HVLP. I am in a state. I don't think you have to use HVLP. If you do, I'm not, we, we don't use an HVLP air cap very often. We use a, what, what's called conventional. Um, so like the old tool sprayers, it just means that there's more air hitting the paint. Uh, it's technically, it's probably 5% less transfer efficiency, but it atomizes the paint better. 
So we would use a conventional spray or cup gun. Um, so, but it, I, I'm assuming by HVLP, uh, you're talking about generally HVLP is used in the world that we live in, that I, in the painting, painting world, not finishing world, like, oh God, is a turbine unit, right? I, I'm assuming that he might mean a turbine unit. The difference between a turbine unit and a gravity fed cup gun um, is fairly significant. I mean, the amount of air volume, even though it says high volume, the amount of air volume that a turbine unit can produce is nothing compared to what my giant compressor is producing with my automotive conventional spray HVLP or conventional spray gun, right? The volume of air that comes from my SADA jet 5500 is there's just way more cfms of air cubic feet per minute of air moving through which is atomizing the paint much better um so hvlp is slow for sure like steph said from pro image um hvlp is very slow um and so you're going to sacrifice speed um so if you have like a single cabinet door to spray um hvlp is tremendous you know you can set up a little cup gun you can mix it you can put your paint through and you just have to clean up the little cup and a little bit of paint that goes through the nozzle even better if you have a pps setup um and you're you have like what we're gonna spray tomorrow we're gonna spray a bunch of oil with a it, it's not it's not hvlp it's what we would call conventional we're gonna use a conventional air cap uh versus an hvlp air cap which is just like volume of air is slightly more constricted um, but in that sap, that SADA gun, uh, we're going to use three air compressors are going to run to one hose to power that gun, right? It requires 13 CFM of air. That's a lot of airflow, a little tiny turbine unit, little tiny, even though we have, a, we have six stage, we have five stage, the CFM of air coming from that little unit is nothing like what's coming from you know, 15 CFM of air running through your gun. So I, I definitely prefer, I'm not a turbine guy generally. I think I, I get that there's lots of people like them. Um, and they're fine. They're, they're fine. Um, I think that they're sort of a middle ground between a lot of things. And so they're very handy to have on site, especially, um, you know, we're going to bring three big, not big, but three compressors to the site and deal with all that stuff. Um, I understand why you, you're, you may not want to do all that stuff. Um, but again, like if you're spraying, like Phil said, if you're spraying clear coats, HVLP has plenty, a turbine unit has plenty of, of airflow to spray most clear coats uh, because they're thinner. They don't require as much air to break them up and atomize them. They're just more forgiving. Um, airless is not the same as conventional. Um, airless is without air, right? Meaning that the paint is pushing itself through a tip with no air involved. It's the pressure of um, the paint that's atomizing the paint. Where an HVLP, in many instances, it's the pressure of gravity is spitting paint out. Like when we dial in our cut, our pressure pot, which is a, a form of, we again, we do it in conventional, but there's an HVLP cap I could put on it. When we dial in our pressure pot, we are, before we turn the air on, we are squeezing the trigger and we're letting that paint come, like spit out, like this little like, 
and it spits out about a foot, foot and a half, and then like dies off. It's just like this little stream of paint that comes out, right? Only when you add the air, which now hits that stream of paint and and atomizes it, right? So conventional, which is is going to be the like mo. I think it's it's safe to say, a conventional spray gun is going to give you the finest atomization of any of the types of painting that we're talking paint sprayers that we're talking about right it is massive amounts like we're talking about 13 cfm plus 12 13 14 cfm that's a lot uh the the biggest the most amount of cfm you can get from a compressor that plugs into a 110 outlet is like six and a half cfm max that's the top of the line one as far as volume of air. So you have to have multiple compressors to run to one of these to power them if you're on-site plugging in. Now, I have a big compressor that has 20 CFM of air. Um, so it's a lot, a lot of air hitting that little stream of paint, which is going to really atomize into very, very tiny dots, right? Um, so airless, and, and so then it's also not nearly as much paint. It's this like thin little stream of paint that's getting hit by a bunch of air. Right, so there's extreme control and small amounts of paint are coming out. Airless is all paint pushing the whole way through, and paint is pushing other paint out through a tip. That requires incredible. When we use a pressure pot, we are at nine or ten psi of fluid pressure. And airless is obviously thousand, two thousand, three thousand psi. It is much more pressure and much more paint per minute is coming out. Um, and an air assisted airless is essentially a, it's, a, it's, it's very similar to that gravity fed or pressure pot like we were talking about. Again, when you spray without air turned on, you have this like squirt of paint or it's a subtle fan pattern actually with an air assisted airless. It's a subtle fan pattern, but it still has tails in it and it's not up to snuff. Right, and then you take that same spray pattern that doesn't look good, and then you blast air into that paint, and it atomizes the paint, and you get a nice finish. So, air assisted airless takes an airless machine and lets you use way less fluid pressure. Right, we're at 400, 600 psi of fluid pressure, um, and about 30 psi of air pressure. And when those two things come together, now you get the same spray pattern ish. Uh, obviously way less volume of paint per minute, right? You'll have more control with an air-assisted airless than you will with an airless because an airless is going to be at 1,200, 1,300 PSI. Um, so a lot more paint is going to be coming out of the gun when you pull that trigger, um, which is good in many cases, but is also a drawback in other cases. Uh, you're going to get a lot more control. Um, I could go on and on about all this stuff. Uh, I hope that helped. Um, Pros and cons. I guess I kind of got into the pros and cons. Um, I think. Um, do I like the Graco handheld? Um, it has its uses for sure. Um, I think it's a it's a useful machine for where it's useful. I wouldn't use it on anything really fine finish uh, unless you're able to start and stop um, off of the surface. Uh, I would not want to start on a surface and finish on a surface with that machine. It doesn't have the best trigger pull, um, but, or in fine finish applications, it's probably not ideal. Um, but 
it comes in it can come in very handy for spraying out one single ceiling in a room or spraying one door um oh john um i know there's plenty of guys where it works out great we i've honestly yes ours has been a doorstop for a long time I, the last time i used it was when i moved into this shop <coughs> because i was spraying four doors with water-based paint that i didn't care about the finish on um it's it's great to spray primer on a couple doors in a situation where you don't have a shop like mine where i can set up a cup gun i can set up and clean up a cup gun in minutes with the pps setup um i'll have to show you guys what a pps setup is at some point um you know it's a very similar situation but um yeah i don't i mean they have uh, that tool is not a worthless tool let's say there are plenty of worthless tools i don't think it's worthless um they used to be really bad i had the fir one of the first ones and i was immaculate with the maintenance on it and i used it three times and it broke and it costs it cost as much to get a new one as it did to fix it because it, it wasn't in pieces back then. It was like essentially just like the whole unit had to be thrown away. Um, but it got them to a point now where like, I think the unit now like you can repair it fairly cost effectively. Um, it's not a bad unit anymore. There was a lot of aches and pains to get here, I think. Um, but I, for the right project, it's great. Uh, let's see. So this was a question based off of the picture that we used that I, I posted for this um, thing, which was the repair job on that the warranty job that we did on the siding. So there was an exterior job where the paint was peeling. We peeled the paint. In this case, we used cover stain. Um, I would not generally use um, cover stain to do an entire exterior of a house, but for a small project like that where dry times were an issue, it's a warranty thing. Um, there's nothing wrong with using cover stain in that situation. Um, if we were going over the top, we could have used the long oil um, and waited and came back. But like it just in this case, we used a fast dry oil based primer and we were able to top coat it fairly quickly after. So we used cover stain. I would not use latex primer over exterior wood, bare wood. Um, you'll just never find me doing that. Um, I just don't think that that's best practice. And I know there's exterior water-based paint primers that people say are great, but oil's going to die. And I would 99% of the time I would say use slow oil. So a slow oil primer is going to dive deep into that wood and it's going to bite and so you're going to get great adhesion. And water-based primer just does not bite, does not dive deep into the wood and give you the same bite. Uh, so generally I would use oil versus latex primer on exterior bare wood. Um, <clears throat> how does fine paints of europe eco brush um it's a fine paints of europe eco is in my opinion probably the most difficult um paint i've ever tried to apply i think eco <laughs> at a very high level right eco is a very difficult paint to apply at a high level um it's very finicky. It has a very narrow range, narrow margin, where it's awesome. And you have to get it right in that range to get the maximum out of it. Now, you can paint stuff. I would paint, you can paint plenty of stuff, and it looks good. 
looks good. To make Eco look great is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. Um, one of them. Uh, yeah, with enough with extender and rolling and tipping, um, Eco. We've gotten Eco to look good. Lots of people have gotten Eco to look good. Spraying Eco, airless is generally the best way to spray Eco. Uh, especially Brilliant. When you get into white satin, like it's very forgiving. But if you get into like a dark color Brilliant, and you try to do anything other than an airless, I've never seen it work. Um, the guy I know, Peter Bokan from Skyline Finishing, Skyline Painting. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He's a certified painter. He is the eco king. He's in New York City. There's a number of buildings where they're not allowed to use oil. And this guy has done full rooms and full walls and ceilings in eco that are phenomenal. Um, and he's done and he does it with an airless. Um, never again, never triggering on the wall. Um, always triggering off the wall, coming onto the wall, and letting go of the trigger off the wall, or just continuously spraying the whole way and then triggering off the wall. Um, but Eco is a very tough product to spray, or to just get great. It's To get it good is not so bad, but if you're trying to get those crazy results you can get with Hall & Lack, it's tougher. Um, let's see. Somebody asks, Benjamin Moore or Sherwin-Williams. Uh, we've talked about that before. Uh, <laughs> yes, like like Phil said, I don't think Benjamin Moore and like many things in life, I don't think we should look at them like they're sports teams and you are a Red Sox fan and the Yankees suck. I don't think that's, I know that's in our nature as humans. To We are very tribal and we want to see everything as Yankees, Red Sox. But... I don't think looking at Sherman Williams and Benjamin Moore like Yankees Red Sox is going to be very useful, is a useful way to, to see it. I think that there are products from both companies. I will use interior <coughs> trim paint. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll use interior trim paint as the prime example. Um, I think that before I got into fine paints and 2K Poly specifically, um, Let's take the, the two premier trim paints, Benjamin Moore and Sherwin Williams sells. Uh, you have Pro Classic and you have Advance. I think they're both good products. I would love to see them on trim more than, way more than I would love to see. I, stop putting Regal Select on trim. Stop putting Emerald on trim. Stop putting wall paints in semi-gloss on trim. Enamels go on trim in best practice scenario whenever possible. So Pro Classic is an enamel. Advance is an enamel. Now, if I have a bathroom to paint, a repaint of a bathroom, I'm going to go with Pro Classic. Pro Classic can be recoated the same day. It's much faster dry times, right? I think that you sacrifice. It's definitely harder to get a really, really nice brushed look with Pro Classic. Because it dries faster, it tends to be ropier. It's tougher to get to lay out nice. But... If I'm doing a bathroom repaint, I'm going to be using, yes, emerald urethane. I'm not talking about emerald urethane. I'm talking about emerald. If you go to ben, if you go to Sherwin-Williams right now, plenty of employees from Sherwin-Williams will tell you to, that you can put emerald on trim, not emerald urethane. Semi-gloss. Put emerald semi-gloss on trim. Like, no, that's not an enamel. Emerald urethane, yes. Very different story. Um, thanks, Jake, for clarifying. I clarified earlier, but... 
but so now in this bathroom thing, if I'm if I have a single bathroom to repaint, I'm using Pro Classic from Sherwin Williams because I can apply two coats in the same day. If I'm doing a whole house of interior trim, I'm using Advance because Advance is a far more forgiving product to brush or to spray as far as aesthetics. Brushed, if you brush Advance with some skill, it will look sprayed. Advance Satin, that's one of my favorite products. That's our that's our standard for trim if we're not using fine paints. We haven't done it in a while, but we did, actually we did that big project when Phil first started that basement project and we did Advanced Satin on that whole place. And Advanced Satin, or, or semi-gloss, but I, I, I'm not a semi-gloss fan. I think Advanced Satin brushed by a, a competent painter looks phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. Um, but I would not look to use it on a bathroom repaint because I'm not gonna be able to put two coats on in a day. So again, if I'm a Yankees Red Sox view, if I have a Yankees Red Sox view of these two things, I'm going to have less flexibility. It's going to cost me money at the end of the day, right? But if I have an understanding of coatings and I can be open-minded to both paint companies have different products that are, have different advantages, right? And I think the best example of it is the Pro Classic Advance um, dynamic. Um, then different situations will make one better than the other. Um, and I think that as a craftsman or craftsperson, like I think that's craftsmanship. Craftsmanship is taking your skills and your knowledge and applying them to the situation to achieve the result that the client is looking for. And so there's that can mean many different things. And so being able to have an understanding of Sherwin-Williams paint line and Benjamin Moore's paint line now gives you a higher level of craftsmanship and a better it's easier to serve your client well when you have an understanding of both and the pros and cons of their product lines. Uh, if you see them as Yankees Red Sox and you're only one, you're going to miss out on some stuff and miss out on some value added to the client. We have a minute and 33 seconds left. I'm terrified of these running out now after that one time it happened. So I'm going to end this and we'll pop right back on. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 28 of ZK Live. I'm Zach Kenny. Tonight is uh, Sunday night, it's Q&A night. Uh, I apologize for not having a show this week. The power went out due to the storm, uh, so we had to reschedule. Uh, but next week we'll have another show. We're gonna be answering questions tonight, um, probably talking about tipping, rolling and tipping a bit. We had a lot of questions about that. Um, we're gonna talk about probably some classes that we may be putting on. Um, we're gonna talk about um, warranty and going back and fixing jobs. Um, can everybody hear me? Uh, I never know if this mic is actually on it. A little red button pops up, but I should button this. Um, but yeah, it's Sunday night. I'm assuming you can all hear me. Um, we had a big week. This coming week is going to be a huge week for us. We have a new deadline that we need to get a bunch of things done on the gloss, black gloss project so we're going to be moving some people up there i look a little shorter yeah i was trying to i put the camera up higher so i could my head wasn't blocking this so it's like angled down and i can see myself um maybe i'll drop it down a bit 
yeah, so we have we have a big week, um, but we have reinforcements. Dan and Bradley, the new guy, are going to be going up to Boston to help out the team. Um, so yeah, it's going to be exciting. Uh, the the mahogany project is coming along nicely. Uh, we may be having a design change as far as the spec goes. I just got a message from the architect. He loves the look of the sanded wood. Um, so lots of things up in the air. We're going to be back at the black eco satin project on those panels. Um, thanks to, oh yeah, thanks to this massive paint heater here. Um, so I think paint goes in here and it comes out here. Um, we're going to be heating up eco and spraying it through an air assisted airless in order to try and get it to lay out, but dry fast at the same time. We're going to be keeping very close track of surface temperature. That thing weighs a ton. Uh, it is solid. It's, it's interesting. Um, in my world, like in most of the, most of the world, like you buy things and they're ready to rock. This is such a like commercial industrial, uh, piece of equipment that I, we have to like hook up the wiring ourselves. Like it didn't come with just like a plug to just plug it in. I think I have to figure out the wiring on it. So I'm going to take it apart tonight and see if I can figure out what I need to do. It's supposed to be pretty simple. So we'll see how that goes. Um, first coat on the handrails, very exciting. Um, we have to get to a stopping point Friday is the goal to have everything but the two full rooms uh, finished in black gloss. Uh, so we have all hands on deck to do that. I think we should be good. Um, what else is going on? We got a lot of cabinet jobs coming up. Uh, we have still a lot of black gloss doors to do for that project. Um, we sprayed the la we sprayed the um, kitchen counter and um, sink with metal. I have a product coming that we're going to be coating all that metal in. Um, very exciting new product. And I've been thinking a lot more about having a class where on a weekend we might have four or five people come out, spend two full days with us in the shop, um, and go deep into, we've had lots of requests for the business side stuff, talking about, you know, how to get into the higher end, how to manage clients and, and move up on that side. And then I've had lots of people asking about spraying, um, and fine paints of Europe and the metal and all those things. So I just, I've, I, I can't ignore how many people have asked to come to the shop and, and have asked to learn. And I just give, I've, I've messaged so many people all the time. Um, but it's really hard to like talk someone through something in a very short amount of time. So I figure we have the shop, we have the space. Um, I think it would be cool to have four or five people out. I don't want to have too many people because then you, you know, it's not hands on enough. Um, but I think, um, I mean, I paid a consultant a lot of money to come out, um, and do a one-on-one -on -one with me when I first started getting into fine paints. Um, the money I invested in that paid off a hundredfold. Um, and I think we can do a very similar thing, um, and, and help out a lot of people and also build community even more, a, a stronger community. I would love my, my, I would love to have like a painter summit 
or a you know a conference where we all got together and talked about codings and got to know each other and share secrets and um, you know that happens at PDCA but that happens more about the business side and so I, I think if we could if I we'll start small with a few people will come out but I think if we can get a uh, work toward some sort of a painter summit or a craftsmanship summit I know the PDCA has craftsmanship forum um, but I think we could maybe do something here at the shop um, that would add a lot of value to people's lives. I would have loved to have gone to something like that when I was starting out. Um, and I, you know, so that's in the works. I'm looking for more feedback from everybody. Um, but I just love the idea of getting together. I've gone to a number of conferences. Um, you know, I've gone to certifications and it is just so invigorating to go spend a weekend with other craftspeople learning the trade or learning a, a, an aspect of the trade and upping your game and getting to know other people who are also trying to up their game. And it's just, it's super valuable. Social media has been great. It connects us all, but to do it face to face, um, for a weekend, I think would be tremendous. So again, if you guys are interested, I'd love to hear from more people about what they would want to see. I have some ideas. Um, but I think we're always trying to elevate the, the standards of the trade and spread knowledge and keep people, um, you know, there's just, we run into too often we see paint contractors who they're just going through the motions or maybe they just don't know any better. Um, we're on a project now with the, all the mahogany and they're brushing on, it's a multi, multi-million dollar house, custom, million, there's over a million dollars in millwork in the house and they're brushing on um regal semi-gloss regal select semi-gloss is being brushed on the trim and those things just should not happen um you just shouldn't put regal select on trim in a nice home uh i would argue i would love to have that discussion if someone thinks you should i'd love to hear why uh, but it's not a true enamel and it's gonna stay sticky and soft on that trim forever. We've all seen projects, we've all been in houses where the, the trim or the doors or the cabinets are sticky and soft, they're not enamel paints. Um, Semi-gloss does not equal trim paint. I just looked at an architect's spec on a multi-million dollar custom home and the spec said, Regal Select Semi-gloss on all trim. We got those things need to change. Like that, just that's not okay. That is a lack of knowledge in our industry. That's a that someone needs to talk to that architect um, and just say like, look, here. Let me ex briefly explain to you why Regal Select does not belong on trim in a multi million dollar custom home. Um, we want to see a true enamel. I know a long time ago, or even twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, semi gloss equaled trim paint. They were all, most paints were enamels. All the oils were enamels. They they just, so you got the semi-gloss and you put it on your trim. Well, with all these water-based wall paints now that come in semi-gloss, um, like I don't believe you should put emerald on trim. Emerald is not a enamel, um, an enamel. Emerald urethane is an enamel. Emerald is a wall paint and belongs on walls. Um, 
it's and it doesn't it's not super difficult to do this you know pro classic is an enamel it dries hard it's going to be great for trim um if you go to the paint store unfortunately the paint store will tell you yeah you can put emerald on your trim can you put emerald on trim sure you can put emerald on trim uh is it best practice i would i would vehemently argue that it is not um trim should have enamel i mean i would prefer to see enamel on walls and trim if if it was up to me but surely on trim you want to see an enamel um specifically doors things you're going to touch and move all the time when the paint doesn't dry especially when the door touches the frame and you have a non-enamel paint it's soft and it's sticky forever uh, nobody likes that that's just when there's other products out there that are enamels it just doesn't make any sense um so things like that i'm always trying to up the level of knowledge um in the industry i think it's valuable um i don't know it's 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 sad to see um non-enamels being put on trim um so we have a, a lot of questions tonight um a number of questions not a lot um i've i had a lot of questions on the holland lac brilliant being rolled and tipped um uh, <clears throat> excuse me just as i was signing on i saw phil made a post about the brushes everybody can go check out phil's post about the brushes those brushes were developed, were brought to my knowledge by a great painter, Jessica Allred, who's been on this show. <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> from Alternative Finishes. Uh, she's a true craftsman, so freaking knowledgeable, and studies the craft, um, and has so little ego as it relates to painting in life but she just she just keeps the ego out of painting and so she was able to find in her search for the best brush to roll and tip she was open to trying brushes that were not expensive and were not sold at paint stores um so she found this brush and when you see the brush and touch the brush you understand why it is a great brush for tipping very very smooth very fine bristles um they don't fall out of the brush uh someone had mentioned that in one of the posts um in one of the comments that it's just a it's a very very fine brush and so when you rolling and tipping is applying paint with a roller generally a foam roller it's this was most often rolling and tipping is done in the boating industry um a lot of uh work on boats and yachts is done using rolling and tipping uh at least before sprayers it was and it still is quite often um, at where you apply, apply the paint like you saw in the video with a foam roller, ideally, um, and then you use a brush on a very um, parallel to the surface angle, so you're not keeping your brush up like this. The far, as many of you know, um, the farther you tilt your brush down, if the surface is like this, the farther you tilt your brush down, the less paint you're going to be taking off, the less... Um, you're gonna be like pushing into the paint, right? When you're vertical, when you're perpendicular like this and you're brushing, you're really moving the paint around a lot. And then you lay, when you lay off paint like this, which was how we tip off our, our paint very softly, just to knock down the air bubbles and to lay out the paint. And then with the oil, it stays open long enough 
that if you have a very smooth surface and you apply a very even amount of coating with the foam roller, now you use that, that brush and you just tip it off. Just knock down the bubbles, give it a very subtle brush stroke, and it all lays out. And it's beautiful. And it's, it's a lot easier to use a foam roller to evenly apply oil-based paint. Anyone who's worked with oil-based paint knows it takes a lot of effort to move and brush oil-based paint if you're just brushing it, right? And that's why oil-based paint brushes for most of time have been very stiff, shorter bristle, very stiff brushes. They allow you to work and work and work that paint very perpendicular and working in lots and lots and lots of brush strokes to really get that because oil-based paint does not want to spread out the way that water-based paint will just spread off the brush. So typically oil-based paint brushes have been natural bristle brushes that are fairly stiff, which allows you to really work that paint, um, which is great for traditional brush finish. So we have a job uh, on the, actually the mahogany project, we're doing the cabinets. We made two samples for the architect and they, he, neither of them has have enough brush strokes in them. So we're going to actually switch back to an Omega brush, the one that Fine Paint sells from Holland. It's a, it's a stiffer bristled, natural bristled brush. And it puts a much more pronounced brush stroke in, what we would call traditional brush strokes, a traditional brush finish. Um, and that's the look the client's after. Quite often though, we are not, we have clients who want a brushed finish or we're brushing to try to minimize the brush strokes, what we call a modern brush finish, where it has very, very, very subtle brush strokes. In that case, now there's modern paint technology, modern paint brushes, these synthetic fiber brushes. And yes, they're not awesome at applying the oil-based paint because they're softer bristles. And so if you were to take your brush and try to brush it out over a surface, it's gonna be harder because the bristles aren't as stiff to move the paint. That's why we use the foam roller. We use the foam roller, we apply the paint. It, you can spread it very nice and evenly. The paint is evenly spread amongst the surface and then we just tip it off. Um, I would encourage you, I'm sure there are a number of YouTube videos on rolling and tipping. Uh, we did a short video, Phil made one showing kind of how it works. Um, oftentimes when whole rooms are brushed, um, in a more traditional setting, they want a brushed finish on a in a gloss room, say, uh, I know guys who do that. Um, and they're gonna, and rolling and tipping is a great way to do a larger bristle brush. Uh, Chinex bristle brush is, uh, I mean, it will work. FPE's abroad, I, I'm assuming you're meaning Holland Lack. Um, Chinex bristle brush with Holland Lack will work. That's a stiffer brush that's more, a little more like the, um, that's gonna give you a more pronounced brushed look. Uh, the Chinex bristle brushes are great. They're stiffer, um, but I would say that the Tynex nylon, the Vegas, for example, that's got a much finer bristle. If you look at the two and feel the two, you can rub them on your face and you'll feel the difference. So the Tynex nylon is gonna be better for tipping if, that's, if you're looking to minimize brush strokes. Um, Houndstooth, Phil just posted a picture uh, at, uh, on his feed of the brush, the brushes that we are using to tip for a modern brush finish. They come from Michaels. They're not expensive at all. Um, and when you see them, 
you'll when you touch them, you'll understand why they're so good. They would not be great at applying paint across a large surface. Um, and, and yeah, they probably are a nylon bristle. They're very, very fine um, synthetic or man-made brush. Um, we've before we found those, we used to use the uh, the Vegas and the other, I believe, the red bristle from Corona, which I believe is Tynex nylon. Um, those are again very, very fine bristles, and so they lay out the paint with minimal brush strokes. But if you were to try to brush something with those, it's going to be a lot more work to try to get that paint to spread with a softer bristle. Um, and that's kind of the difference. Yeah, the Sabre and the Vegas are, are those brushes. Um, and they're great brushes. I, I, I do like them a lot. Um, let's see. So I posted a picture of a warranty job um, that we just fixed um, this week. Three years ago, we did a project where the front of the house had been painted, but the other three sides were natural shingle style, um, uncoated. They turned black. And because of the wood preservative, I'm very confident in painting unpainted, uncoated shingles in the past. I would have maybe put a solid color stain on, but never would have painted. Um, because of the wood preservative now, we feel very confident painting bare wood. Um, so that project, you can go back three years into my Instagram feed and you can see, you can find video of us doing it. We sprayed on, um, C2 guard wood preservative, and then we sprayed on oil-based primer. Um, and then we sprayed on two coats of, uh, emerald at the time. Um, the house looks mint everywhere, except for, I believe they had a backed up gutter in this one section. Um, either that or the gutter could be uh, too narrow. It could be a four. It's a four inch gutter, and it maybe should be a six inch in that one spot because it's a, a lot of water comes down this hip. Um, so there was clearly water, extreme water damage. Water was just like pouring in this one section. There was a downspout there, and right around the downspout and behind it, uh, the paint was peeling off in sheets. So. Anytime a client calls or shows, sends me pictures saying like the paint's peeling, like oh, you know, that's obviously our worst nightmare. Uh, especially on a project where we did a thorough wood preservative primer paint, um, paint peeling was the last thing I would ever expect. So initially I'm just like, oh wow, let me go see it, but I'm pretty sure there's something else going on, but let me go see. So the, the thing, when we peel the paint back in that picture that I posted, you can see the, the backside of the peeled paint is full of wood fibers. So the paint was very well adhered to the wood. The wood was not well adhered to the rest of the wood. So that's due to moisture, right? Like the, because I had treated that bare shingle. And so there was the top layer of that shingle was wood, had wood preservative. So it was waterproof but there was moisture getting in from behind and it was pushing out and must have made those wood fibers eventually come off. It pushed the wood fibers off. So um, we took the gutter off, the downspout off, we scraped the paint, we sanded it, we applied oil primer and we touched up the paint. Um, free of charge, we didn't charge the client. Um, it, I don't have a formal warranty. I need to make one because we're just going to warranty everything all the time. Um, 
even in this case when we didn't do it wrong. If if it was a bigger fix, I would have had to charge the client. Like I can't repaint an entire house if it's not my fault. Um, but this was a an acute issue. I made them aware that here's what I, I need you to talk to your gutter guy and get your gutters fixed so this doesn't happen again. I I'm, obviously I'm not going to come back and paint it another time if this fails if you don't deal with your gutter. Um, but it was just like you know, it's a small price to pay for it's, I just see it as customer service, uh, and marketing budget. And it's like, yeah, we're going to show up and we're going to fix something like that. The, the client was great. Um, at the time and they still are, they've always been great. Um, they didn't bust my, you know, they, they weren't grinding me on price when we originally did the project. Um, so I was happy to go back for them, um, and make that right. Now, had they been, grinding me on price, uh, not wanting to pay the final payment. If they'd been jerks and not good clients, um, yeah, there's probably, if they, they wrote me a review on Google three years ago, I'm sure. Like, there, it was a two-way street. Like, they were great clients. We were a great painter to them. And so when something goes wrong, like, we're showing up. Now, if they had not been a good client and they had been jerks to us or try to not pay the final payment or, or any of those things. Well, then I've had that happen before. And then I've had the client call us and want us to come back and do stuff. And, and it was like, are you kidding me? You, you didn't even pay me in full for this project. And now you want me to come back and touch something up that we didn't do wrong. Um, that's not going to happen, but a good client, like we're always going to take care of a good client. And you know, do I, was it that big of a deal? It was a day, you know, it was less than a day's worth of work. It was about a day's worth of work for one guy. Um, and so, you know, moving on. Um, I think that that will pay off in the future. The client was ecstatic. Um, that will pay off in the future. Um, even if it's not this client directly, that mentality will pay off in the future. Um, and I'm much more looking at the long game here than the short game. And did I make money on every man hour today? Uh, if we spend a few hours making someone happy that keeps the customer and keeps our reputation good, you know, it's cost of doing business. Um, and I think that's having the long game, uh, perspective. So I may, I probably, I didn't always have that. I, I'm certain I didn't always have that. Um, there's definitely a time where I was very quid pro quo tit for tat business mentality. I think that's very dangerous to have a like short term, small minded, like I'm at war with you and I got to get, if you give me something, I'll give you something, but I'm not going to like that. Just like adversarial, um, perspective on things. I, I think is, it's a very defensive, uh, mentality and mindset. It's not a, like what do they call it, like the blue ocean mentality or whatever to business. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for not seeing our world as a zero sum world and sort of giving more than you get and, and you'll always have plenty. Uh, back to what I always talk about, of adding lots of value and, and then capturing some of the value in return back. And the more value I give, the more I'll be able to capture in return. Um, so it was an easy decision. Let's see, where should we start? Um, so I went over, this is fun. I forgot about this. My friend, uh, MTL Carpentry asked, why did it fail? Moisture was, uh, there's excessive water because the downspout was most likely backed up. Um, or it was not a sufficient size 
gutter and downspout, one of the two. Because uh, it was it was so localized, the rest of the house is in perfect condition, um, and right on either side of the gutter section of that wall was perfect. So it was clear that it was that gutter that was the issue, and it was moisture. Um, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. All right, Wood Guy says, "How long do you wait to paint eastern white cedar shingles after they've been installed?" Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that. I would not, I would want to wash them after, um, I don't know. I would say like three, three months would probably be the max I would wait without washing them, like power washing the house before I painted them again. Cause you're going to get mold and mildew growing on them at, at, a, at some point. And we're going to want to use oil-based primer, so we're not going to want to lock in mold and mildew with food. Oil-based oil primer and oil paint is food for mildew, right? The linseed oil in there, the mildew likes to eat. Um, so we want to make sure that there's not a lot of mold and mildew on the surface before we oil prime. Otherwise, you're locking in uh, and giving food to the mildew. It will eat away, and we've all seen paint peel because the mildew was underneath the paint. Um, so on Eastern White, cedar shingles if they were installed new um and they were taken care of i would probably want to get them coated within two to three months the most um, otherwise we just have to wash the house before we coated them um, and in all of those conditions if we're painting i'm going to be using a wood preservative first on any bare wood especially on shingles that are only getting coated on one two three four sides of the six um you know the wood preservative is cheap insurance um so that answers that i think that answers that question but if you wait too long it's the surface is going to get really dirty and now your paint adhesion is going to be an issue so really you, you don't want and then you're going to get a deteriorated layer of wood as well but mostly i'm concerned about the surface being contaminated when i go to prime um so thanks for that question here we go we have a project coming up that involves this J&M painting and drywall said can you share some experience you've had with RRP compliance I will share that we do very little lead work because we do it all by the book um, with RRP compliance and Rhode Island has some fairly strict laws and in order to do it legally you spend a lot of time not painting right you spend a lot of time setting up plastic documenting things a lot of so there's a lot of extra liability right I can get fine massive amounts of money three years later I have to keep my records for three years after I do a project uh, sign in books of who was on the job site each day you have to have a, a plan on how you're gonna take care of you know you have to clearly show that you've educated your employees on how to do things um, there's a lot of extra work that goes into it right then then on the day of when you go to actually paint like now you have to mask the inside of every window with blue tape and plastic so that no dust gets inside the house. You have to alert the neighbors, which is never fun, to say, hey, we're gonna be working with lead next door, come watch us. Um, then you have to put six mil plastic 10 feet out from the house. You have to catch all of your, your chips. You have to contain them at the end of each day. It, a lot of work goes, in the, goes into the paint, goes into not painting, which obviously adds a lot more cost. Add to the fact that now if a kid tests 
with eleva- all children get tested at school for lead when they're young, and if those one of those kids has an elevated level of lead, now they go to the the, the parent and they say, "Give us a list of anyone who's been doing work in your house in the last three years," and they come to me now and they say, "Well, let me see the book that you had that showed all the people working, and let me see the." the proof that you were like compliant, right? And I have to show them all that stuff. And so there's a lot of it. And then I can get big fines, right? If I don't do that properly. So if I'm going to do all that, if I'm going to take on those liabilities, I'm going to also now take on all that extra labor. And so what ends up happening is 99% of the time, this is why we don't do much. I've done two and we're about to do one that's very different and unique. I'll tell you about that. But the 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 biggest one we did was a restoration of an of an old church that's now a house. It's beautiful. It was the biggest learning lesson I've ever had on a project. But we absolutely crushed this project as far as the actual painting went. Um, I really dropped the ball. It was early on in my career. I did not know how to manage clients and expectations, and um, I burned that bridge at the end. And I'll share about that sometime. But we removed every ounce of lead, every ounce of paint off the outside of this house. And they had double crown moldings. It was this gorgeous church that was now a house. So, but by the time we were going to do all this stuff, it's like, what are you going to, you're going to have me scrape the loose lead paint and then paint it. So by the time, because if you hire me to come do it legally, what we end up, what I, why I never win them is I say like, honestly, I think you should just remove all the paint from your house. Do it one time and be done with having lead paint. Well, that's very expensive now. So we just don't do it very often. Um, I know there are plenty of guys who are doing it that aren't going that extreme, but I just look at it like if, if I'm going to do this, I don't really want to do it, but if I'm going to do it, I want to do it in a way where we are doing a restoration. We are getting rid of all lead. I've done that. I did a, a project um, on the east side of Providence with window sashes and so we restored all the window sashes we took every window sash out of the house we stripped them to bare wood we took the glass out we documented this whole process we put the glass back in we painted the windows we kept we shellacked the sides of the windows and we used beeswax to the sides of the window with shellac so that they didn't they slid nice and we don't paint the sides of the window same with the tracks we stripped the tracks um we took the parting bead out we stripped that down and we put shellac and beeswax on the parting bead and on the sides of the tracks. Um, and we were able to document that whole process so that the lead inspector could, could come in and then sign off that these, they, they move the windows up and down, I think five times or something. And they take lead swabs, test swabs, and then they test them in a lab um, in order to get the certification that the client was after to say it was a lead free um, surface um so you know we kind of come in and if we're going to do lead it's sort of an extreme circumstances um i understand that it's not for everybody and there's other ways of doing it Uh, i've missed a bunch of comments while i just went on that rant um use something other than water when cleaning wood shingles to kill any mold spores yeah we we use cedar wash um or we'll use um chlorine bleach it's not ideal there's Cedar wash is really the best product. Or oxalic acid or citric acid. Um, Yeah, it's very tough to get clients to want to pay for uh, doing lead legally. 
I just had my neighbor having it done illegally. I, I ranted on this on Instagram about it when it happened. Um, yeah, the fines are huge for lead. So I just look at it like if I'm going to do it, um, we're going to do it by the book, which means we don't get very many lead projects. Um, but we've had a few. We've had a few. Um, I'm actually, so I just got contacted by a bank. We're going to be doing a project. Actually, it's a, it's a rare one for us where we're not doing a very, very high end fine finish type of thing. But again, we're using our coatings expertise to give the client what they want. In this case, the client needs, uh, it's a bank, it's a foreclosure. The client needs a lead certified company to come in and get them a certificate of compliance, which is what they need in order to sell the building. Um, so we're working with the lead inspectors um, which I happen to know from other projects. And so we're, we've come up with a plan to get them a certificate of compliance. Um, I will not be probably documenting this project. It's going to be the ugliest thing we've ever done. The house will be probably completely demoed um, and restored when it's sold and, and bought by somebody else. But in order to legally sell the building, uh, they need to get a certificate of compliance. Uh, this is a board, building that's boarded up right now. And not boarded up. It's got metal boarded. It's boarded up with metal things on the windows. Um, but we are going to come in and we're going to remove all loose and peeling paint. And we're going to get them a certificate of compliance. Um, but we don't typically do stuff like that. Um, most of what we do is a lead, when it's lead based, is restoration work. In fact, I had a client this summer who came to me and wanted us to do it. And I, I, I just recommended to him he should probably put vinyl siding on his house. I think that was a better use of his money um the house didn't wasn't didn't have a historic value to it and it was just cheaper in the long run to wrap the house in vinyl than it was to remove the lead paint and paint it properly safely um yeah so that's that um here we go Schindler's Museum asks, why do you use a foam roller to distribute the paint on the banister? Um, what is happening? People, there's, someone is just randomly putting things in the comments. Um, I'll have to get rid of them. Why do you use a foam roller to distribute paint on the banister? Uh, the foam roller adds the least amount of texture to the paint as we apply it. So if you take a, the black foam rollers and you work the paint, you get just a very, very subtle foam roller texture. Um, and you don't have to worry about fibers, right? If you were, if we were to take a, even a microfiber, uh, I gotta get rid of this guy. I don't understand what is happening, but, uh, sorry, buddy. Um, uh, here we go. Uh, all right. We got rid of that guy. That was weird. Uh, when you use the foam roller, Versus, say, even if you got like a super nice microfiber mini roller and oil, you're going to have little fibers that fall off of it probably, and you're going to have a lot more texture to the mini rolling. I, I've always called them mini rollers. I know people call them whiz rollers. Call them whatever, the four-inch little rollers. Um, the foam roller is nice because it applies the paint very... Because th we want a thin layer of paint, and we want it very, very evenly applied. Um, and so the foam roller is perfect for that. It's not great if you're using water-based paint and you're trying to put like a nice coat of paint on fairly quickly. Some people call them hot dog rollers. 
Um, for water-based paints that you're trying to like paint fast and put a lot of paint, like yeah, foam roller is not awesome. But when you're trying to apply a thin amount of oil-based high gloss black paint, um, a black foam roller is tremendous. Uh, we got a new question in while that was happening. Here we go. Um, Mr. Andrew Adams, um, air assisted versus HVLP pros and cons. Ooh, this is fun. Um, this is some of the stuff that we'll get into in real depth when we do the classes. Uh, we'll call it, I don't know what we're going to call it. ZK Academy or I, I don't know what we'll finish. We'll call it some, something cool, but air assisted airless is a tremendous finish. Um, but an air-assisted airless machine obviously requires a lot more paint, right? Because you need to fill a line full of paint. Um, so even if, say, you use a 15-foot hose, which is pretty short, and a hopper on your air-assisted airless gun, like you're still filling up that hopper with and a line full of paint. Um, so you're going to have you're going to need more paint. It's not going to be good as good for small projects. You're going to have a little more cleanup for sure. Um, so air assisted airless is better, is best for, um, larger projects generally. Um, if you're going to spray more, when you need to get a higher volume of paint out, uh, it's funny HVLP is high volume, low pressure because there's not a lot of paint. It's high volume of air, but there's not a lot of volume of paint coming out. Um, so it's not ideal uh, HVLP is not ideal for water-based paints for sure. Um, and arguably air assisted airless isn't ideal either, but there's less air and more paint in that situation. So it's better for water-based. Um, but air assisted airless is really versus HVLP to me comes down to size of project. Um, you can get the same finish with both generally. Um, but if I'm looking to do a single door, I'm going to use an, uh, and I, I, we don't, I prefer not to use HVLP. I am in a state. I don't think you have to use HVLP. If you do, I'm not, we, we don't use an HVLP air cap very often. We use a, what's called conventional. Um, so like the old tool sprayers, it just means that there's more air hitting the paint. Uh, it's technically, it's probably 5% less transfer efficiency, but it atomizes the paint better. So we would use a conventional spray or cup gun. Um, so, but I'm assuming by HVLP, uh, you're talking about generally HVLP is used in the world that we live in, that I, in the painting, painting world, not finishing world, like, oh God, is a turbine unit, right? I, I'm assuming that he might mean a turbine unit. The difference between a turbine unit and a gravity fed cup gun um, is fairly significant. I mean, the amount of air volume, even though it says high volume, the amount of air volume that a turbine unit can produce is nothing compared to what my giant compressor is producing with my automotive conventional spray HVLP or conventional spray gun, right? The volume of air that comes from my SADA jet 5500 is there's just way more CFMs of air, cubic feet per minute of air moving through, which is atomizing the paint much better. Um, so HVLP is slow for sure, like Steph said from Pro Image. Um, HVLP is very slow, um, and so you're going to sacrifice speed. Um, so if you have like a single cabinet door to spray, 
Um, HPLP is tremendous. You know, you can set up a little cup gun. You can mix it. You can put your paint through, and you just have to clean up the little cup and a little bit of paint that goes through the nozzle. Even better if you have a PPS setup, um, and you're you have like what we're gonna spray tomorrow. We're gonna spray a bunch of oil with a. It's not it's not HPLP. It's what we would call conventional. We're gonna use a conventional air cap uh, versus an HVLP air cap, which is just like volume of air is slightly more constricted. Um, but in that sap, that SADA gun, uh, we're gonna use three air compressors are gonna to run to one hose to power that gun, right? It requires 13 CFM of air. That's a lot of airflow. A little tiny turbine unit, little tiny even though we have a, we have six stage we have five stage the cfm of air coming from that little unit is nothing like what's coming from you know 15 cfm of air running through your gun so i i definitely prefer i'm not a turbine guy generally i think i, I get that there's lots of people like them um and they're fine they're they're fine um i think that they're sort of a middle ground between a lot of things. And so they're very handy to have on site, especially, um, you know, we're going to bring three big, not big, but three compressors to the site and deal with all that stuff. Um, I understand why you, you're, you may not want to do all that stuff. Um, but again, like if you're spraying, like Phil said, if you're spraying clear coats, HVLP has plenty, a turbine unit has plenty of, of, airflow to spray most clear coats uh, because they're thinner they don't require as much air to break them up and atomize them they're just more forgiving um, airless is not the same as conventional um, airless is without air right meaning that the paint is pushing itself through a tip with no air involved it's the pressure of um, the paint that's atomizing the paint where an HVLP in many instances, it's the pressure of gravity is spitting paint out. Like when we dial in our cut, our pressure pot, which is a, a form of, we again, we do it in conventional, but there's an HVLP cap I could put on it. When we dial in our pressure pot, we are, before we turn the air on, we are squeezing the trigger and we're letting that paint come, like spit out, like this little like, and it spits out about a foot, foot and a half, and then like dies off. It's just like this little stream of paint that comes out, right? Only when you add the air, which now hits that stream of paint and and atomizes it, right? So conventional, which is is going to be the like mo, I think it's it's safe to say, a conventional spray gun is going to give you the finest atomization of any of the types of painting that we're talking paint sprayers that we're talking about right it is massive amounts like we're talking about 13 cfm plus 12 13 14 cfm that's a lot uh the the biggest the most amount of cfm you can get from a compressor that plugs into a 110 outlet is like six and a half cfm max that's the top of the line one as far as volume of air so you have to have multiple compressors to run to one of these to power them if you're on-site plugging in now i have a big compressor that has 20 CFM of air. Um, so it's a lot, a lot of air hitting that little stream of paint, which is gonna really atomize into very, very tiny dots, right? Um, so airless, 
And, and so then it's also not nearly as much paint. It's this like thin little stream of paint that's getting hit by a bunch of air, right? So there's extreme control and small amounts of paint are coming out. Airless is all paint pushing the whole way through and paint is pushing other paint out through a tip. That requires incredible, when we use a pressure pot, we are at nine or 10 PSI of fluid pressure. And airless is obviously 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 PSI. It is much more pressure and much more paint per minute is coming out. Um, and an air-assisted airless is essentially a it's, a, it's it's very similar to that gravity fed or pressure pot like we were talking about. Again, when you spray without air turned on, you have this like squirt of paint or it's a subtle fan pattern actually with an air assisted airless. It's a subtle fan pattern, but it still has tails in it and it's not up to snuff, right? And then you take that same spray pattern that doesn't look good and then you blast air into that paint and it atomizes the paint and you get a nice finish. So air assisted airless takes an airless machine and lets you use way less fluid pressure, right? We're at 400, 600 PSI of fluid pressure um, and about 30 PSI of air pressure. And when those two things come together, now you get the same spray pattern-ish, uh, obviously way less volume of paint per minute, right? You'll have more control with an air-assisted airless than you will with an airless because an airless is gonna be at 1200, 1300 PSI. Um, so a lot more paint is going to be coming out of the gun when you pull that trigger, um, which is good in many cases, but is also a drawback in other cases. Uh, you're going to get a lot more control. Um, I could go on and on about all this stuff. Uh, I hope that helped. Um, pros and cons. I guess I kind of got into the pros and cons. Um, I think, um, do I like the Graco handheld? Um, it has its uses for sure. Um, I think it's a it's a useful machine for where it's useful. I wouldn't use it on anything really fine finish uh, unless you're able to start and stop um, off of the surface. Uh, I would not want to start on a surface and finish on a surface with that machine. It doesn't have the best trigger pull, um, but or in fine finish applications, it's probably not ideal. Um, it comes in, it can come in very handy for spraying out one single ceiling in a room or spraying one door. Um, oh, John. Um, I know there's plenty of guys where it works out great. We, I've honestly, yes, ours has been a doorstop for a long time. I, the last time I used it was when I moved into this shop <coughs> because I was spraying four doors with water-based paint that I didn't care about the finish on. Um, it's, it's great to spray primer on a couple doors in a situation where you don't have a shop like mine where I can set up a cup gun. I can set up and clean up a cup gun in minutes. With the PPS setup, um, I'll have to show you guys what a PPS setup is at some point. Um, you know, it, it's a very similar situation, but um, yeah, I don't, I mean, they have... Uh, that tool is not a worthless tool. Let's say there are plenty of worthless tools. I don't think it's worthless. Um, they used to be really bad. I had the first, one of the first ones and I was immaculate with the maintenance on it. And I used it three times and it broke and it costs, 
it cost as much to get a new one as it did to fix it because it, it wasn't in pieces back then. It was like essentially just like the whole unit had to be thrown away. Um, but it got them to a point now where like I think the unit now like you can repair it fairly cost effectively. Um, it's not a bad unit anymore. There was a lot of aches and pains to get here, I think. Um, but I, for the right project, it's great. Uh, let's see. So this was a question based off of the picture that we used that I, I posted for this um, thing, which was the repair job on that, the warranty job that we did on the siding. So there was an exterior job where the paint was peeling. We peeled the paint. In this case, we used cover stain. Um, I would not generally use um, cover stain to do an entire exterior of a house, but for a small project like that where dry times were an issue, it's a warranty thing, um, there's nothing wrong with using cover stain in that situation. Um, if we were going over the top, we could have used the long oil um, and waited and came back, but like it just in this case, we used a fast dry oil based primer and we were able to top coat it fairly quickly after. So we used cover stain. I would not use latex primer over exterior wood, bare wood. Um, you'll just never find me doing that. Um, I just don't think that that's best practice. And I know there's exterior water based paint primers that people say are great. But oil is going to die, and I would 99% of the time I would say use slow oil. So a slow oil primer is going to dive deep into that wood and it's going to bite and so you're going to get great adhesion. And water-based primer just does not bite, does not dive deep into the wood and give you the same bite. Uh, so generally I would use oil versus latex primer on exterior bare wood. Um, <clears throat> how does Fine Paints of Europe Eco brush? Um, it's a, Fine Paints of Europe Eco is, in my opinion, probably the most difficult um, paint I've ever tried to apply. I think Eco, at a very high level, right? Eco is a very difficult paint to apply at a high level. Um, it's very finicky. It has a very narrow range, narrow margin, where it's awesome. And you have to get it right in that range to get the maximum out of it. Now, you can paint stuff. I would paint, you can paint plenty of stuff, and it looks good looks good to make eco look great is the hardest thing i've ever tried to do um one of them uh yeah with enough with extender and rolling and tipping um eco we've gotten eco to look good lots of people have gotten eco to look good spraying eco airless is generally the best way to spray eco uh especially brilliant when you get into white satin like it's very forgiving but if you get into like a dark color brilliant and you try to do anything other than an airless, I've never seen it work. Um, the guy, I know Peter Bocan from Skyline Finishing, Skyline Painting, uh, he's a friend of mine. He's a certified painter. He is the eco king. He's in New York City. There's a number of buildings where they're not allowed to use oil. And this guy has done full rooms and full walls and ceilings in eco that are phenomenal. Um, and he's done, and he does it with an airless. Um, never again, never triggering on the wall. Um, always triggering off the wall, coming onto the wall, and letting go of the trigger off the wall, or just continuously spraying the whole way and then triggering off the wall. Um, 
but Eco is a very tough product to spray or to just get great. It's to get it good is not so bad, but if you're trying to get those crazy results you can get with Holland Lack, it's tougher. Um, let's see. Somebody asks Benjamin Moore or Sherman Williams. Uh, we've talked about that before. Uh, <laughs> yes, like like Phil said, I don't think Benjamin Moore and like many things in life, I don't think we should look at them like they're sports teams and you are a Red Sox fan and the Yankees suck. I don't think that's I know that's in our nature as humans to we are very tribal and we want to see everything as Yankees Red Sox. But I don't think looking at Sherman Williams and Benjamin Moore like Yankees Red Sox is going to be very useful is a useful way to, to see it. I think that there are products from both companies. I will use interior <coughs> trim paint. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll use interior trim paint as the prime example. Um, I think that before I got into fine paints and 2K Poly specifically, um, let's take the, the two premier trim paints, Benjamin Moore and Sherwin Williams sells. Uh, you have Pro Classic and you have Advance. I think they're both good products. I'd love to see them on trim more than, way more than I would love to see. I Stop putting Regal Select on trim. Stop putting Emerald on trim. Stop putting wall paints in semi-gloss on trim. Enamels go on trim in best practice scenario whenever possible. So Pro Classic is an enamel. Advance is an enamel. Now, if I have a bathroom to paint, a repaint of a bathroom. I'm going to go with Pro Classic. Pro Classic can be recoded the same day. It's much faster dry times, right? I think that you sacrifice. It's definitely harder to get a really, really nice brushed look with Pro Classic because it dries faster. It tends to be ropier. It's tougher to get to lay out nice. But if I'm doing a bathroom repaint, I'm going to be using. Yes, emerald urethane. I'm not talking about emerald urethane. I'm talking about emerald. If you go to Benj if you go to Sherman Williams right now, plenty of employees from Sherman Williams will tell you that you can put emerald on trim, not emerald urethane. Semi gloss. Put emerald semi gloss on trim. Like no, that's not an enamel. Emerald urethane. Yes, very different story. Um, thanks, Jake, for clarifying. I clarified earlier, but but so now this bathroom thing. If I'm if I have a single bathroom to repaint. I'm using Pro Classic from Sherman Williams because I can apply two coats in the same day. If I'm doing a whole house of interior trim, I'm using Advance because Advance is a far more forgiving product to brush or to spray as far as aesthetics. Brushed, if you brush Advance with some skill, it will look sprayed. Advance Satin, that's one of my favorite products. That's our that's our standard for trim if we're not using fine paints. We haven't done it in a while, but we did, actually we did that big project when Phil first started that basement project, and we did advanced satin on that whole place. And advanced satin, or, or semi gloss, but I, I, I'm not a semi gloss fan. I think advanced satin brushed by a, a competent painter looks phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. Um, but I would not look to use it on a bathroom repaint because I'm not going to be able to put two coats on in a day. So, again, if I'm a Yankees Red Sox view, if I have a Yankees Red Sox view of these two things, I'm going to have less flexibility. It's going to cost me money at the end of the day, right? But if I have 
an understanding of coatings and I can be open-minded to both paint companies have different products that are, have different advantages, right? And I think the best example of it is the Pro Classic Advance um, dynamic. Um, then different situations will make one better than the other. Um, and I think that as a craftsman or craftsperson, like I think that's craftsmanship. Craftsmanship is taking your skills and your knowledge and applying them to the situation to achieve the result that the client is looking for. And so there's that can mean many different things. And so it, being able to have a, an understanding of Sherwin-Williams paint line and Benjamin Moore's paint line now gives you a higher level of craftsmanship and a better, it's easier to serve your client well when you have an understanding of both and the pros and cons of their product lines. Uh, if you see them as Yankees Red Sox and you're only one, you're gonna miss out on some stuff and miss out on some value added to the client. We have a minute and 33 seconds left. I'm terrified of these running out now after that one time it happened. So I'm gonna end this and we'll pop right back on.